So if I ever betrayed the public's trust, it was the day that I agreed to carry a hand grenade through the Burlington Airport security checkpoint. I was in training to be a pilot with Delta Connection at the time, and so part of my homework assignment was I had flight privileges, of course, even though I wasn't actively flying for Delta, I still had a few check rides to take. And so what we would do to train is to supplement our classroom and simulator instruction is I had permission to go to the airport and hop any Delta Connection flight I wanted that was in the aircraft that I was going to be operating to watch the first officer and the captain run through the same systems and controls that I was going to be tested on in the next coming weeks and months. And so it's called jump seating. And so I would jump seat in the cockpit all over the place. And so I was on a flight from Washington, D.C., up to Burlington, Vermont, and I watched them run through their checklists and their flows and the takeoff and the landing and all that stuff. And we had about an hour or so before we were going to board up to go back to Washington, D.C. So we all went inside the airport in Burlington, very nice little airport, and grabbed a cup of coffee and hung out a little bit. And I was not in uniform. I had my, I, my lanyard on, identifying me as a flight crew member, but I was not in uniform. I was kind of dressed like this, just a shirt with a collar and a halfway decent pair of pants. And as, I was, as we were preparing to go back through security, I noticed that there was this, like, tall, well-built guy in a suit that was kind of eyeballing me. And he was over sort of by security, but he was around a corner so that the guys who were working the security checkpoint couldn't see him. And I could see that I had his attention. I didn't know why. And sure enough, as I went to go through security to head back out to the aircraft to watch them through their pre-flight checks and all that stuff, he approached me and said, you know, sir, my name is John Smith, and I'm with the Federal Aviation Administration. Here are my credentials. I could use your help today. I said, okay. You know, if, if, you, if you don't know, the, the FAA or the Federal Aviation Administration controls your life as a pilot. Like if they say you're good to go, you're good to go. If they say you're not good to go, you're not good to go. They're the, they're the ultimate big boss, the FAA. Well, what can I do to help? He goes, I'm doing some security checkpoint screening testing today, and I would like you to carry something through security for me. And I was like, yeah, no. No, I'm not interested in carrying anything for you through security. And he goes, well, let me tell you how it's going to go to assure you that it's going to be okay, that you're not going to lose your job or whatever. Uh, I'm going to ask you to carry an object through security, and my name is this, and, you know, he showed me his credentials again, and he, and, he, and he gave me a little letter. So he goes, if you make it through security and nobody stops you, then just meet me on the other side of security. But if they see me, they will know that it's a check day, and they'll be on super, super alert. But you're a flight crew member, but you're not in uniform, and so if anyone's going to get a pass on security today, it's going to be you because they're assuming that you're vacationing and you're a flight crew member, so they're going to extend professional courtesy to you and not take you apart. And so you would be the ideal candidate to try and get this item through security. And so I had the letter from him shoved in my pocket that said, please don't send this guy to jail if you catch him with a thing. And he hands me a soda cup, like a 16-ounce soda cup, and when he handed it to me, it, it was like really heavy. And so I popped the lid off. There's a straw in it. I popped the lid off, and there's a grenade in there. Now, it was a fake grenade, but you couldn't tell unless you actually took it out and looked at it. There was no pin, and it was all cast out of one piece of metal, so it didn't have any moving parts. But it was a grenade. It looked, smelt, and felt like a grenade in this soda cup. And I'm like, what have I gotten myself into 
like, I, how did this happen? I mean, it's the FAA, and I have the letter in my pocket, and theoretically this guy's not going to leave, you know, about the time I get caught with a grenade going through airport security. So I'm like, okay. And so I have my, and at the time, the procedure was, because it's changed so many times, this was before 9-11. This was about six months before 9-11. So the procedure at that time was, if you had a beverage, they wouldn't run it through the x-ray machine. This is why he was trying to sneak a grenade through with a soda cup. Because the procedure was, they were supposed to visually inspect the contents of the drink and then ask you to drink it if they had any suspicion. And so it wasn't going to go through the x-ray machine because then obviously they would know it was a grenade. And so the procedure at that time was to set it down. They would pick it up. They'd visually inspect it, ask you to drink it, and hand it to you on the other side. So I set this, <laughs> I set this grenade in a cup down. And I, I'm going through, so, you know, whoop, 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 whatever. And, and then I'm kind of watching out of the corner of my eye, and there's two agents working. And the one agent looks to the other. He picked up the cup and was like, and like, okay, there's obviously something. Holy cow, okay. He goes, Tim, hit the big red button. Bonk. Hits the big red button. And, sir, would you please step over here? And, I mean, no, you're going to step over here. And, you know, they took me for a special screening. And then so I'm digging for the letter. Like, no, really, it's, it's just me. And. I'm here to help, and yay, you passed the test. And then, thankfully, the FAA came around the corner and said, okay, don't arrest them, you know, because they're, they're, like, ready to haul me off to the bad place. And, and so I, I felt that when it was all said and done, and I shared this story with the flight crew, they looked at me, because I was new to the world of aviation, and they're like, we would have never done that, because there are so many things that could have gone wrong there, never mind the fact that, like, you kind of you broke the code. Like, you're one of us. You have the lanyard on, your flight crew. You're not supposed to torment the security agents with fake grenades. Like, I get it that they need to test it, but, like, let, other, let the flying public be the guinea pigs. You have a career. You ought to have known better than to try and carry a grenade through airport security in Burlington, Vermont. And as soon as they said it, I did know better. I, I, I did know better. I, I knew that the, that, that the Fed couldn't, you know, clip my ticket because I wouldn't agree to carry, you know, a grenade. If anything, by signing off on carrying a grenade through airport security, he could have clipped my ticket. Like, what kind of guy are you? Like, you're an airline pilot, and it's that easy to get you to carry a grenade through airports? Like, really? But I was, you know, it was before 9-11. Things were a little bit different, and there was an adventure to it. But at the end of the day, I knew better. For the past nine weeks, we've been studying the Apostle Peter and his problems with Jesus. And we're coming up on the final problem that he had with Jesus. And it came at the conclusion of the Passover week. And it's the, the, last, it's the last interaction that Jesus, that Jesus and Peter had before Jesus went to the cross. And, and, and we're going to take a look at this passage. And we're going to spend a little bit of time identifying the problem that Peter had. But the bottom line is, is Peter had an interaction about Jesus and he knew better. There were some things that Peter knew, the very things that we've been studying for the past nine weeks or so, that Jesus had taken the time to teach Peter. And his understanding of these things was not perfect, but the bottom line is he knew better. So let's take a look at the text this morning and identify this final problem that Peter has with Jesus. And then this morning we're going to move into a time of communion as well. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to John chapter 13, verses 36 38 as we identify this final problem that Peter has with Jesus. Now Jesus had communion with his disciples for the first time. That's the preceding context. They had just had communion together. 
And Jesus is saying that where I go, you're not going to be able to come. Now, Peter had used his words very clearly throughout the dinner to say things like, you know, Jesus, don't wash my feet. There's no way I'm going to let you're my Lord, my king. There's no way I'm going to let you demean yourself by washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then I have nothing to do with you. So then, of course, Peter says, well, Lord, just give me a bath. Just cover me from head to toe because I'm your guy. Like, I, I'm your number one guy. And that, so that conversation had just taken place just a few minutes prior to this. And Jesus was saying some things that were hard to understand that made it sound like he was going somewhere that Peter could not follow. And so we find this passage here in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 36. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? I assure you, a, roast, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, of course, this is not what Peter wanted to hear. He had just made a number of professions of his faith in Jesus, that he was even willing to die for Jesus. And Jesus says this very painful truth, that Peter is on a path that is going to lead in him doing something that he should know better. Because here, Peter knew better, because here's the kind of things that we've been talking about in May and June. They'd had an interaction, and, and Peter knew that the personal ministry of Jesus, interacting personally with Jesus, once Jesus gets a hold of you, he gives you a ministry. Like, that's how you know you have a relationship with Jesus, that you have an interaction with him, and then he gives you a job. He gives you a task, and he equips you for it. Peter knew this. Peter knew that being a man of faith was not about popularity. It was all about preaching the word of God. Because at the end of the day, we can only fly our own airplane. We don't get to steer anyone else's car. We don't get to drive anyone else's boat. And so there's nothing that we can do to change someone else's mind other than preach to them the kinds of things that God would preach to them if he were standing right there. And it has nothing to do with popularity. Peter knew that. Peter knew that his service and devotion to Jesus reflected his faith. That the more time you spend with Jesus and the more you hear his words and the more you respond to them, the more you're going to desire to serve Jesus. Peter knew that when we confess Jesus, we are giving Jesus a place in our future. That when you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're basically saying, Jesus, you are now a part of my forever, even as I'm a part of your forever. That our confessions are powerful. Peter knew this. Peter knew that salvation does not equal self-preservation. It's very easy to think that now that I follow Jesus Christ and I have e my eternal security is, is dialed in, so I, I can expect to live a life of ease and comfort here and then glory thereafter. Peter learned that, no, that's not what salvation is all about. That salvation really doesn't have much to do with self-preservation at all. If anything, it has to do with self-sacrifice. Peter learned that lesson. Peter knew that Jesus was all about his people. That he wasn't about a place, that it wasn't about the temple, it wasn't about a building, that Jesus was all about time with his people. And that hasn't changed, of course. We, we experience that on a week-by-week -week basis. Peter also understood that when he forgave his brother, which was in his brother's best interest, that his brother's best interest led to his own blessing. That being the kind of people that forgive as we have been forgiven leads to our own personal continued provision and blessing. Peter knew that his assurance of faith came with ever greater surrender, that the more of his time and energy and talent that he gave in the service of Jesus Christ, 
the closer he felt to him and the greater assurance he had. And then finally, last week, we took a look at a few different principles, but it can be summed up by Peter knew that easy deliverance can be deceptive. That the Christian life is not one of, of ease, as I mentioned previously, but that anyone that comes along and says that it is, has probably got something to sell you. And so that easy deliverance can be deceptive. Peter knew better. He had these nine lessons poured into his life over the course of three years. Now, we know he was still processing a lot of this stuff, but the fact of the matter is he knew better than to betray or to deny Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly what he went on to do. The text goes on to say that Jesus was arrested. He was actually betrayed by Judas with a kiss. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane after a prolonged time of prayer that before the sun even came up, he, he went through a series of essentially sham trials where he was guilty before he even opened his mouth. And then, of course, he appeared before Pilate. And during the course of those sham trials that took place in the homes of the religious leaders of the day, Peter would follow Jesus and was warming himself in the courtyard, standing by the fire, walking around a little bit. And three times he was confronted. I can tell by your accent that you're a Galilean. And Jesus was from Galilee, so you must be one of his followers. And the text goes on to say, and we're not going to take the time to turn there this morning, that not only did Jesus, that Peter denied knowing Jesus, but that he did so by calling down curses on himself, using vulgar language, basically saying, let me be cursed if I have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Three times he does this throughout the course of the morning. It had been a terrible night, a terrible night. And then the text goes on to say that as Jesus was being led to his final meeting with Pilate, the sun is now up and a rooster crows. And they exchange a look. And then basically Peter runs off. And he disappears from the text. He does not show up at the cross. In fact, he goes back to fishing. He's, he's just completely destroyed. He, 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 he denied his Lord, even though it was intent to never do so just a few hours previous. Things happened that he could have never anticipated. It was not Peter's plan to deny Jesus. Not his plan at all, but it was something that absolutely happened. But Peter knew better. In fact, uh, one of the things we're going to take a look at this morning, as, as we understand that the final problem that Peter had with Jesus is that he said he would never deny him, but then he did, and he knew better. It's important to look at, well, how did Jesus help Peter? And the first place that we're going to turn to look is a parallel passage found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke adds some details to this exchange between Peter and Jesus that John did not include. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, listen to what Jesus tells Peter here. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is still... Before Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, this is still in the context of the communion dinner that they had had. And so we know that not only did Jesus tell Peter that you will deny me three times before a rooster crows tomorrow morning, but worse than that, that Satan has asked to destroy you. Even as a farmer would sift wheat, the good stuff from the bad stuff, the kernel from the husk, and it's a process by which the wheat is completely separated Jesus uses this as a picture to say, this is what Satan wants to do to your life. He wants to pick you apart. But I have prayed for you. I have interceded for you. And when you come back to me, I have a job for you. 
And so how Jesus helps Peter, even before Peter denies him, is that Jesus interceded. Jesus interceded for Peter with his heavenly father and begged that Peter would be kept safe, that Peter would be preserved. Take a look at this passage here in Romans chapter uh, 8. Let me take a look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. Listen to what Paul writes. I'm sorry, verses 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Listen to what Paul writes. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Here's a powerful thought for us this morning. We know that God the Father is the creator of the heavens and of the earth, and that Jesus Christ was present from the moment of creation. We also know that the Holy Spirit was present at the moment of creation, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and then God brought everything that is into creation by speaking. And so from Genesis chapter 1, we have God the Father involved in creation. We have his Son, the Word, the spoken Word of creation. And then we have the Holy Spirit, who's the one who makes things happen on the planet. So we know that uh, the Heavenly Father has always been in heaven. That's where he's always been. He, he's not like Zeus or any of the, the fables of old where he lives on a mountain that you can climb to and visit God the Father. The Bible says nothing about that. In fact, it says that God is a spirit. He can't be seen with human eyes at all. So he, the Heavenly Father has always been in eternal glory. He lives in a state of eternity. He's never visited the planet. We know that the Holy Spirit is the continuing presence and power of God that works through the life of the church. It's the glue that powers us and holds us together. When a person prays to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit seals that person for eternity. It's like when you write a letter and lick the envelope and close it. It's sealed. In the original context, that word meant that they would write on the parchment. They would roll it up and then heat up some wax and blob it on there and seal it. That the presence of the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation seals that believer for all of eternity and also empowers that believer with spiritual gifts that they have aptitudes and abilities to do things to serve the church that they simply didn't have before it's great so god the father is in heaven perfect the holy spirit is here on the planet indwelling the saints yay so where's jesus he is in god the father's presence and what is he doing he is interceding for his saints he is standing at his father's right hand, reminding him of his own words, protecting, preserving, blessing, and empowering his people. That is what he's doing right now. He is in a state of continued advocacy, intercession, and prayer for us. This is what Jesus is doing right now. That's where he is, and that's where he's going to be until history wraps up. And we know that from this verse for one who can separate us from the love of christ can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword N none of this is powerful against us because even more jesus christ has been raised he is also at the right hand of god and he intercedes for us paul goes on to continue in this passage that he says i am persuaded that not even even death or life angels or rulers things present or things to come, hostile powers, height nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. And part of what is empowering that love is the fact that Jesus is standing next to his heavenly father right now, interceding and continuing to pray for his people. The word of God, Jesus Christ, is speaking the words of God to God about us. That's his job. That's what he's doing right now while he is patiently waiting for history to end. We find this clearly taught in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Why this fierce advocacy? Why, why would Jesus dedicate himself in this way to spend all this time, as we count time, advocating for us? Because we're here for a while, we do our thing, and then we go on our way, and if we're particularly strong, we have 90 to 95 years. But yet his advocacy for us continues. Why the fierce advocacy? For the simple reason that just like on the first day of creation, God gave his word, and he will never abandon this claim. And when a person comes to God in faith through Jesus Christ, he gives his word through the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, and he's never backing down. The power of the advocacy or the intercessory continuing prayer of Jesus Christ. Well, did Peter understand this? What did Peter do? We've been talking about this for the past couple of months, and we know that Peter continued to follow Jesus, that even though he denied knowing him and called down curses on himself, let me be cursed if I have anything to do with that guy. Now, I know that you've probably done some things that you're not real proud of. I know that there have probably been times that you have had to handle business with God because you felt like you violated a relationship in a certain way, that you denied someone that was close to you. What was theirs? Your love, your affection, your kindness, your words of patience. But I doubt that any of us got up one morning and call down curses on ourselves to deny our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you might be wondering, why does Peter get restored and Judas doesn't? Because Judas betrayed Jesus too. The big difference between Peter and Judas is understanding that there is a difference between I should have known better and my plan is working just as I planned it. You see the difference? That's the difference between Judas and Peter. There's a difference between I should have known better. I did not get up that morning and put on my lanyard representing Delta Connection saying, ha ha, old Tim Smith from the FAA is going to meet me in Burlington with a grenade, a fake one, and I'm going to carry it through security. Won't that be fun? Because I hope I sneak it through so that in the future I can sneak a real one through and blow something out of the air. That's not how I woke up. There's a difference between, man, I should have known better. And my plan is working out perfectly. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas had a plan that he executed with excellence. Peter clearly declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ, and then life got real. And, and he got scared. And he said things that he wished he could have never said, or he could have taken back. So what did Peter do? We, we find Peter's teaching regarding this powerful advocacy of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Listen to what he says should be the foundation of our restoration when we fall away from Jesus Christ. He's in the middle of a thought here, but he says, By obedience to the truth, 
having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You do know that the hallmark of a Christian fellowship, that the hallmark of a Christian church is that we, we take care of each other because we simply share with each other what Jesus has shared with us. This is the foundation of our fellowship, that we're all equal before the eyes of God, and we simply extend to others the grace and forgiveness that's been extended to us. This is what he's saying, that you, you've been purified for some sincere love of the brothers. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. He equates the power of the word of God as to a seed that never dies, that never rots, that never gets old or fails to produce. For, and now he's quoting here from the Old Testament, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached as the gospel to you. So Peter clearly teaches. He's had some time now to think about this. He's had some time to be restored to ministry. We know that Jesus restores him to ministry. And he asked him three times. It's a mirror of the number of times that he denied Jesus. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says three times, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus gives him a job, right? Three times he tells him, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, watch after my people. Because Peter knows that when you draw close to Jesus, Jesus gives you a job. And, and so he's restored. It's found in John chapter 21. The passage is called Breakfast on the Beach. It's a beautiful passage of Jesus' forgiveness of Peter for denying him. It wasn't Peter's plan to deny. It just happened. And so Peter is restored because... Jesus knows this. We're kind of like the grass of the field. Some of us are prettier than others. We're kind of like a flower. But at the end of the day, we get a little wilty. The sun comes up. Maybe it doesn't rain as much as it's supposed to. Maybe some bugs get into the soil. Long story short, maybe someone comes along and mows us. Long story short, humanity. People's ability to make a commitment. Our steadfastness. Our own sense of faithfulness, the Bible clearly says it's adorable. It's like the grass of the field. It's fun to walk through barefoot, but don't actually step on it too hard. Because it's, it's transient. The best of us is like a flower that quickly fades. However, the word of the Lord endures forever. And God's word is like an imperishable seed that has been planted in the life of a believer. Peter you know, sure. Was it disappointing to have you deny me? Th that was a terrible morning. We all had a terrible day that day. We all had a terrible day. And so, sure, that was disappointing, and you ought not to have. And we know that Peter never did it again. But Jesus says, at the end of the day, your commitment is kind of like grass. It's real, and it flowers. It's beautiful. It has its purpose. But you know what's really permanent? The seed that my father has placed inside of you. Do you love me? And he restores Peter and brings him back into effective service. So Peter follows and he placed his faith in the word of God. And so this morning, by way of conclusion, application, kind of the challenge is, is that if our commitment 
to Jesus Christ is based on our desire to be a good person, if our commitment to Jesus Christ is based off of our resolve, if our commitment to be committed to Jesus Christ is based off of our fervency, if our commitment to serve Jesus Christ is based on faith in ourselves, the scripture's pretty clear. We're in trouble. It's not gonna end well for us. At some point, we will end up denying Jesus because at the end of the day, grass is beautiful and grass is amazing and some of us are prettier than others and we flower, but we all fade. There's no permanence to anything that we can bring to the equation. However, if our faith and our desire to serve Jesus Christ is based on the eternal power that is found in God's word, we are secure now and we are secure then. It's like a seed that never gets old, that continually blossoms, that is planted inside of us. And our Heavenly Father is con continually being interceded with by His Son, reminding Him of the work that He has begun in us. Jesus is effectively asking His Dad, asking His Father, hey, I know they're trying hard, but I'm not asking you to secure their salvation because of their efforts. I know that they mean well, but I'm not asking you to secure your salvation because of their intentions. I know that they feel that they're a very faithful person and they have a little bit of righteousness in their own eyes, but I'm not asking you to do anything special for them based off of that. I'm asking you to do something special in them to preserve them, to protect them, to bless them, to cause them to grow because you gave your word. And at the end of the day, that's what they've placed their faith in. That is what Jesus is doing right now for you and for me and for those of us who know him through an experience of salvation. Our forgiveness is not based on our effort, our fervency, our track record, our upbringing, or even, as in Peter's case, his words. Because sometimes he used his words poorly. But at the end of the day, Peter placed his faith in the unchanging word of God and lived his life in accordance to it and was restored and received salvation. You see, there's a difference between doing something that you know you not ought to have done and having a plan. And it's been a negative example so far this morning, but I guess I'd like to end by making it a positive example. There is a power to making your commitment of faith to Jesus Christ a plan. That is not just something that, oh, I went to church and so it seemed like the thing to do and so I did it. Something that I ought to have done that I did. Okay, great, there's some merit to that, but there's something to be said for actually having the kind of faith that is planned out. That when you make a decision of faith or if you've made a decision of faith, that there are certain things that you do to keep it close, to keep it real, to keep it alive, to keep it healthy, that we allow God's permanent word in our lives to continually blossom. So the challenge this morning is as we move into a time of communion, to make our salvation and our continuing closeness with God, to make it a plan to make it something that we work on consistently, to make it something that is a priority in our life, to make it something that we can prove, like there's evidence that we have actually placed our faith in the eternal word of God. I've really enjoyed the past couple of months taking a look at Peter's problems with Jesus because we've been trying to connect the ministry of Jesus Christ with the mission of the church. And the takeaway from this morning's message is that we have a message, which is we can be saved we can have a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ that is evidenced by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the unchanging and permanency of God's promise and God's word. 
even as there is a planet that wasn't here until God said there would be, so we have been saved and will continue to be kept safe and forgiven of our sins by the power of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son's continued advocacy. It kind of wouldn't matter so much if we spoke up for ourselves. It kind of wouldn't matter if our pastor spoke up for us because at the end of the day, we're here for a while and then we move on. It's like the grass. It's nice to look at, but not permanent. Father, thank you so much that your son, who is also known as your word, continually advocates on our behalf that we would be found faithful, that we would be found strong, that we would be found like a seed that never gets old, that is continually fruitful. And Father, we just want to say amen to the prayers of your son on our behalf that are taking place even as we pray right now. And as evidence of our, our gratefulness, as evidence of our faith, Father, we, we want to receive communion this morning. We know that it honors you because we are being faithful to your word. This is not something that we've made up. It's not something that we constructed or had a good idea about. We're simply following something that your son commanded us to do while he was still here with us. So Father, I pray that as your people are found obedient, that we would also be found fruitful, that we would continue to make decisions of faith, that we would continue to see baptisms, that we would continue to see people in ministry, that we would continue to see the healthy growth, not just in numbers, but in actual maturity and faith happening right here in a town that we care so much about. We're known by your name because you named us. And we continue to place our faith in your word, in our fears, in our doubts, in our insecurities, in our guilt, in our pride. Father, we come back to the things that you told us that we pin our, our, our lives on. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his relationship to us. Thank you for this opportunity to worship together this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name.